Uh, good to see so many of you uh, this morning. Uh, I'm excited because we're starting a new series today, and that new series is on the book of Revelation. Today is going to be a seven-part series on the book of Revelation. Pastor Jeremy and I are going to be preaching this together. And today we're going to start. Um, I want to say that uh, I want to apologize to you in advance uh, because in seven weeks there's no way for us to cover everything. And there's so many questions that we will probably leave unanswered. However, my commitment to you is that we're going to do our best uh, to answer every question that we could possibly answer. Uh, but the book of Revelation is incredibly important, and it's incredibly important for us to understand what is written in it, especially for right now. I want to begin with a word of prayer because there's, there's, a, there's so much here, and I need the Lord to grant us the wisdom to communicate clearly. Father, as we turn our hearts and minds towards your word this morning, I pray that you would speak clearly. I humbly ask that you would speak clearly and that you would make known to us the good pleasure of your will, which you purposed in Christ Jesus. Lord, speak to us as we turn our hearts and minds toward the pages of your word. We give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Revelation, a lot of people misunderstand the book of Revelation. And because we misunderstand the book of Revelation, we don't read it. Uh, one of the things that we tend to misunderstand about it is we tend to think of the book of Revelation as a scary book. Uh, one of my cousins who was a, a gangster in his earlier years um, would sit with one of his gangster friends in the garage and they would read the book of Revelation together. And he said whenever they would, they would be terrified as they were reading. And he said one day he looked at his friend, they were 16 years old, and just eyes filled with fear, he said, if this is true, we're finished. And this is how most of us feel naturally when we read the book of Revelation. The, the word Revelation, that is the title of the book, is the Greek word apocalypse, which is even more unfortunate. Because the word apocalypse in our culture and in our time, it's a tragedy an apocalyptic event, is some type of disaster. Uh, there's a string of movies that speak of post-apocalyptic post world. And a post-apocalyptic world is a world that has been devastated and destroyed. And so because we tend to, we tend to think of apocalyptic events as devastating, as tragic, we see the book of Revelation as a book of devastating or tragic events. But I want to encourage us, I want to invite us to think of the book of Revelation a bit differently as we begin. If you were to get free tickets, if you were to win the lottery uh, to see Hamilton, and you got two tickets and you and your spouse got all prettied up, and you drove to San Francisco pretending that the pandemic is over and you could actually safely uh, go to a theater, and you got perfect seats in the theater and you're sitting waiting for the play or the musical to begin. And at a certain moment, the lights go down in the house and the curtain opens on the stage. And when the curtain begins to open, your heart is filled with anticipation and joy because 
the play, the drama, is about to begin. And the characters on the stage are about to be revealed. That opening of the curtain, that is revelation. And that's how I want you to hear the book of Revelation. Matter of fact, that's how they would have heard it in the ancient world because the word revelation literally means an opening up, an uncovering, or revealing. That is, revelation is removing the curtain, pulling back the curtain so that you can see what was already there but hidden from view. It's an open up, opening up, it's an uncovering, it's a revealing, and it's a breaking through. That's what the word revelation means. And so the first reason why the book of Revelation is obscure to us is because we tend to see it as a set of tragedies or as a set of disasters instead of the opening up or revealing or uncovering of that which is not seen. You see, the theme of the book of Revelation is that things are not as they seem. And there's this twofold purpose to the book of Revelation. It's, it's casting the present in light of the unseen realities of the future, but also casting the present in light of the unseen realities of the present. So the book of Revelation is not just about what's coming in the future, but what's happening right now. Now, the second reason why the book of Revelation is obscure to us is because we tend to see the book of Revelation as being about the future or about the end. What God is revealing in the book of Revelation, we tend to think, is the future. In actuality, if you look at the opening words, the opening verse of the book of Revelation, the scripture says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is really what the book is all about. It's not about the end times, it's about Jesus Christ. It's not about the, the beast or the Antichrist. It's about Jesus Christ. That is, what is being revealed in the book of Revelation is not primarily end-time events. And oftentimes, see, we get off track when we come to the book of Revelation with a primary desire to understand end-time events. We're already off base. We should come to the book of Revelation with a primary desire to see Jesus Christ. It is the revelation of of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants. Jesus is being revealed. He's the receiver of the revelation from the Father, and then he shares it with us. And so we need to get it in our minds and hearts that we're coming to the book of Revelation to see Jesus, not the end times. And that is an incredibly important piece that we're going to see again and again. Uh, I'm going to read a, a couple of verses here. Actually, first of all, verse 3. The book of Revelation is the only book of the Bible that begins with a promise and ends with a warning. In 1.3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear. 
So already what's being confronted is our tendency to approach the book of Revelation with fear. We should approach it with joy and anticipation. Blessed is he who reads and blessed are they who hear. Literally, he's speaking of the, the one who, who reads out loud to the churches, who receives this book and reads it out loud to the churches. Blessed are, is the one who's reading this out loud and blessed are the ones who hear. Do you realize that just sitting through and listening to this series on the book of Revelation, that there's a blessing that is promised to you simply by hearing. And I want to encourage you to enter deeper into that blessing by reading the book of Revelation on your own. Read a few chapters a day. Read a chapter a day and read all the way through the book. If you read one chapter a day, you'll read through the entire book of Revelation twice during the seven-week series. And so, uh, yeah, the promise is, blessed is the one who reads but also the warning at the end in chapter 22 is if anyone takes away from the words of this book, God is going to take away his portion, uh, take away his name from the book of life. And so we want to heed both the blessing and the warning. All right, uh, let's get into this uh, just a little bit. So first thing we need to know is that um, what was happening? What's the setting? And why is the book of Revelation being written? Uh, so John, he says, he tells us uh, down a little, little bit here uh, that he was, um, he was on the island of Patmos when he received this. And he was on the island of Patmos because of the testimony of Jesus. Uh, yeah, in verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. So he was... He was exiled there to the island of Patmos, which means he was, in a sense, in an extended quarantine. He was isolated. He was sheltered in place. It wasn't because of a pandemic. It was because of his faithfulness to Christ. And he's banished to this island that's basically a rock quarry. And so he's just sitting amongst the bleached rocks. It's a very desolate place. It's not like a retreat. Uh, we hear it's an island, but it's not that kind of an island. And he's all by himself. He's separated from the churches. Uh, what was happening in that time, this is in the early 90s, probably around 92 AD. Uh, the emperor of Rome at the time was Domitian. Now we remember in the mid-50s, uh, 50s to the 60s actually, there was an emperor by the name of Nero. And Nero was, uh, the, he was a Caesar. He was the most vicious of the Caesars. He was the guy that would would throw Christians into the arena and, and the crowds would cheer as they were torn apart by wild animals. He was the guy who would host dinner parties uh, in his garden at his palace and he would tie Christians to trees all around the garden and cover them with, with tree sap and set them on fire and make them candles uh, in his garden for his parties. Um, he was uh, just a, a really, really ruthless guy. Matter of fact, both Peter and Paul were beheaded uh, were were uh, executed under the reign of, of Nero. Nero was a bad guy. Well, this guy Domitian, who was emperor of Rome at the time, <coughs> he was paranoid. He was constantly paranoid of being overthrown. He declared himself to be uh, Kurios Kai Theos, Lord and God. And he required all of his subjects in the entire empire uh, to recognize him as Lord and God. And everyone was required to go into the temple of Domitian to take a pinch of incense and throw it into the fire on the altar, declaring uh, Kurios Caesar, Caesar Kurios, meaning Caesar is Lord. Uh, John refused to do this, and this is why he's banished to the island of Patmos. He was actually considered to be an atheist at the time. At that time, if you were not a polytheist, if you did not believe in, in the entire pantheon of gods, 
you were considered to be an atheist. So the early Christians were actually considered to be atheists because they only believed in one God, right? And so John, now he's on this prison island. He can't just grab his cell phone or FaceTime with the churches. He knows that the churches are dealing with all of this persecution under this, this emperor Domitian. And he wants so badly, they're, they're on his heart so heavy, he wants somehow to communicate with the churches. But any letter that he writes is going to be read by the Roman authorities and censored. And if it's, if it's not approved, it's not going to be sent to the churches. And so he needs a way to be able to communicate with the churches in a way that's going to pass uh, through the inspection uh, but yet, if he waters down his message, uh, it's not going to be—it's not going to be received with encouragement. It's not going to strengthen the churches, and so he's—he's he's desperate for a way to minister to the churches during this time of persecution. The answer comes one Sunday morning. He says he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Uh, that's verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet and he receives the entire revelation. Now, here's the brilliance of the book of Revelation. It's now written in code. The revelation that is given to him by Jesus Christ is written in such a way that when the Roman authorities read it, they're going to just pass it over as the ramblings of a crazy person because there's all this coded language in it that only someone steeped in the Old Testament would understand. But when the churches received it, they would understand very clearly uh, what he's talking about. They would understand very clearly that the, the Roman authorities would read it, not realizing that much of what they're reading is about them. <laughs> but they would pass it right on because this crazy guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He's speaking of all these images, uh, but it's written in the style of apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature uh, was not something that was foreign to the church. So first of all, you must understand that in order to understand the book of Revelation, you've got to understand the Old Testament to some degree because there's more than 500 Old Testament images or quotes right? So we think of Revelation as being about the future, but it keeps looking back to the past. The book of Revelation is about the future, but it's the ancient future. It's the future that existed in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. It's the future that the prophets spoke of. It's the future that the psalmist sang of. The future of which Revelation speaks uh, is a future that was already contained in the covenant that God made with Adam and Eve when he spoke of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. You see, Revelation doesn't simply move forward to the end of the age, but all the way back to the garden, to the beginning of it all. And that's why Jesus is called the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so the point of Revelation is that you don't have to worry about the future because God has had it in his hands since before the foundation of the world. That's powerful, isn't it? Now, uh, the great theme of the book of Revelation is that Jesus is coming. And I'm going to say that again. Jesus is coming. Everything that you read in the book of Revelation and everything that we're going to talk about has this as its great theme. Jesus is coming. And when I say Jesus is coming and when the book of Revelation teaches us that Jesus is coming, it's not just speaking of some end time event that is separated from every other event of history. And that's how we tend to think of the coming of the Lord, as an end-time event that's separated from every other event of history. You've got these events of history, and then separate all of a sudden, the sudden coming of Jesus Christ. That's not what it means. We must stop thinking about the coming of Jesus as an event. Uh, instead, we should think of the coming of Jesus as a process. Okay? 
Behold, he is coming with clouds. Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with clouds. Right now, Jesus is coming. His coming began 2,000 years ago. And he will continue to come. That is, right now, you see, Jesus is not sitting passively in heaven waiting for a moment in which he will suddenly come. He is actively pressing in upon history. He is actively pressing in upon the earth, pressing in upon the kingdoms of the earth. Even now, he is coming, right? He is coming. And this is what is causing the great upheavals of history. Although his coming seems to have nothing to do with history, his coming has everything to do with history. His coming seems to be to us an event at the end of history that's completely disconnected from every historical event when in actuality his coming is the driving force of history itself. We cannot discern history. Uh, We cannot discern his coming from within history, but we'll look back at the end of the age and say, oh wow, everything in history was leading towards the ultimate completion or finality of his coming. Everything was leading towards towards this moment. Of course, it ended up this way with Jesus in charge of everything, with Jesus ruling everything, with every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Of course, it led to this moment. Things are right on schedule. That's the moment. That's the message of the book of Revelation. There's no crisis. Everything is in God's hands. Things are right on schedule. The only crisis is our unwillingness to repent. That's the message of the book of Revelation. If you are willing to repent and to walk with Christ, all is well. The only crisis of history is the historic unwillingness of men and women to repent and to return to God. That's the only crisis. God's end time plan is already in the works and there's nothing we can do to change it. And there's nothing we can do to stop it. (laughs) He's coming with clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Look at this, verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who was and who is and who is to come. The book of Revelation begins and ends with Jesus saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He says this at the beginning of the book and he says this at the end of the book. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Beginning, RK. I am the beginning, RK. RK. RK is not just a first, but it's the first of a sequence. It is the archetype of everything that follows. When Jesus says, I am the beginning, he says, I am the archetype. I am the first of a sequence of everything that came after me was patterned after me, was made to look like me, to reflect my glory. It was all created to look like me, to sound like me, and to reflect my glory. I am the pattern for everything, and everything was created after my image and likeness. Everything has its beginning in him and takes its shape from him. And then he says, I am the end, the telos. Telos is the inherent destiny of a thing. The telos of an acorn is an oak tree. Jesus says, I am the telos of everything. I am the inherent destiny of all things. All things will end up before me. Every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that I am Lord. Uh, Jesus says that he is the, the beginning 
and the telos and that we were created by him and for him. He is our beginning and he is our end. How powerful is that? And so it's, listen, if you're, if you're worried about the end, Jesus says, I am the end. I am the end. You come to Revelation to study me, not to study end times, but to study me. I am the beginning. I am the end. I am the proton and I am the eschaton. I am the protology and I am the eschatology. I am the alpha and I am the omega. I am the A and I am the Z and I am everything in between. Meaning if you get Jesus, you've got everything in between. All right, moving on. Now, the book of Revelation, oh, by the way, one more thing I need to say uh, is that um, the whole book of Revelation contains what John saw and what he heard. 40 times John says, I saw, and 32 times John says, I heard. And the primary exhortations, because we need to know how to respond when we hear the teaching of the book of Revelation, the primary exhortations of Revelation are, listen and look. 10 times we are exhorted, listen, listen. Let him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Do you have an ear? If you've got an ear, hear, listen. You gotta listen. You gotta open your heart. You gotta grab your soul by the throat, and you've gotta listen. You're gonna feel your soul wanting to go to, to sleep and take a little cat nap sometimes. You've gotta listen. And then, secondly, look, behold, see. Open your eyes. It's not visible to the naked eye, but by faith you can see. I'm calling you to see something. Revelation confronts us with the fact that we've been listening to the wrong voices and we've been looking into the wrong faces. The book of Revelation tells us that the secret to making it, to living, to being a stalwart disciple of Jesus Christ in the midst of a context that is hostile to his gospel is to listen to the right voice and to look in the right direction. Now, the book of Revelation in our, our whole series is going to be organized around the number seven. The number seven, I said before that Revelation is apocalyptic literature and there's a number of, of um, peculiarities uh, of apocalyptic literature that we must keep in mind. When I say apocalyptic literature, uh, there's portions of Daniel, like Daniel 7, uh, there's portions of Zechariah, um, portions of Isaiah, uh, that are written in this style of apocalyptic, speaking of end times events. And what we see in apocalyptic literature is a, uh, we see a tendency uh, to use animals to portray different people, to speak of uh, events, historical events in terms of natural phenomenon like earthquakes and floods. Um, but also numbers are very important in apocalyptic literature. And the most important number in the book of Revelation is the number seven. Uh, seven in the book of Revelation and elsewhere in scripture speaks of completeness, fulfillment. Uh, it speaks of perfection. And so the book of Revelation revolves around seven visions of Jesus. Seven times throughout the book of Revelation, John sees Jesus, which means that these seven visions of Jesus are the perfection, the completion, the fulfillment of what God wants us to see in the book of Revelation. And so every Sunday over the next seven weeks, including today, we're going to look at each one of these uh, seven visions of Jesus. So today we're looking at the first vision, the second visions in John are in Revelation 5. We're going to see that next Sunday and then the following Sunday, Revelation 7 and then Revelation 14. And we're going to make our way through these seven visions of Jesus. And what we see of Jesus in each of these, of these visions 
is the primary message that God wants to speak to our hearts. But what's even more crazy and more important and more encouraging is that in each one of these visions of Jesus, there's a corresponding vision of the church. The church always appears with Jesus. This is so important that Jesus does not appear in the context of historical events, but he always appears with the church. The church is always with him. And so in each of these messages, we're not just going to look at one particular vision of Jesus, but we're going to see the vision of the church that corresponds with it. Okay, now with that said, let's jump into this first vision in chapter 1, verse 9. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and joint participant in the constriction and in the kingdom and endurance of Jesus Christ came to be in the island, the one being called Patmos, because of the word of God and because of the testimony of Jesus. By the way, I'm, I'm reading from my own translation here. Verse 10, I came to be in the spirit in the Lord's day, and I hear behind me a great sound as a trumpet. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. First thing we must understand, John said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Mean The Lord's day, that's Sunday. That's the day that the people of God come together to worship. John said, I was isolated and alone, but I do the same thing in my isolation as I did when I was in community. When I was in community, when I was in Ephesus, he pastored the church in Ephesus for many years. On Sunday, I went to church and I worshiped with the people of God. John says, just because I'm isolated right now does not mean that I stop being who I am. I have a self-perpetuated, spiritually disciplined, living relationship with Jesus Christ. The difference between a mature believer and an immature believer is that an immature believer does Christian stuff as long as they are connected to a Christian church. All they have to do is follow the program. But a mature believer will do the same thing regardless of where you put them. You take an un a mature believer and put them in a place where they're the only Christian there and they'll be just as Christian. They'll play, pray just as much. They'll worship just as much. They'll study the word of God just as much. They'll give just as much. They'll love just as much. They'll preach just as much as they would be if you put them in the midst of a vibrant church. And so John's a mature believer. And so he woke up that Sunday morning. He put on his Sunday best and he says, I'm going to church. And I, he said, I was in the spirit. I came to be in the spirit on the Lord's day. I decided I was going to church. Why? Because John knew that worship transpires in spirit and in truth. That is when I lift up my hands to worship, it doesn't matter if I'm in a room by myself. I am at that very moment of worship connected to every other believer in all times, not just every other believer on the earth right now, but all the believers in heaven. John understood that the church in heaven and the church on earth were one church. And that whenever any one believer worships from any one place, Place. What is heard in heaven is always the sound of a multitude, and that that voice is combined with every other, with the voice of every other worshiper from all times and in all places. John understood that our connection to one another is spiritual and not just physical. And so John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a voice behind me. Jesus does not speak in front of me. He always speaks behind me, meaning he does not simply speak in a direction that is convenient for me. He always speaks in a direction that I have to turn to hear. And that word turn literally means to repent. The essence of repentance is turning when you hear the voice of the Lord. And when you hear the voice of the Lord, do you turn or do you simply keep moving in the direction you're moving in? John says, I turned to hear the voice. 
First he says, I heard a voice behind me like the sound of a trumpet. A trumpet always makes an announcement, calls for attention. Trumpets sounded uh, to call us to war. That if there's a certain tr trumpet sound that calls to war. There's also another type of trumpet sound that signifies that a king is entering into the city. And so this, the, the sound of Jesus is twofold. The trumpet of the voice of Jesus is twofold, informing us that a king is entering into the city, but also informing us that it is time to go to war. And Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega. Notice John hasn't turned yet. He hears this voice behind me. I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Uh, and he says, and, which, and what you are observing, what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We'll get to that in a second. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that spoke, literally, and I turn about to be looking for the voice which speaks with me. So he says, I'm turning because I want to see the voice. I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. He's turning towards Jesus. He says, but when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. I turned to see Jesus, and we're going to discover that the seven golden lampstands represent the seven churches. And seven being the number of perfection, it's not just those seven churches in Asia Minor, but it represents all churches in all times. Literally, the church is the seven churches. He says, I turned to see Jesus, but the first thing I saw was the church. Isn't that interesting that he sees the church before he sees Jesus? He turned looking for Jesus, but he saw the church first. And isn't that our experience as well? That when we go looking for Jesus, the, the place we go to look for Jesus is the church. And how many of us can say as our testimony that when my heart began to pursue Jesus, I went to the church because that is really what the church is supposed to be, is the place where people can run after Jesus and find Jesus and look for Jesus. And, and what confirms this is John says, in the midst of of the seven lampstands here in verse 13. Literally in the middle of the seven lampstands. Walking amongst the seven lampstands. I saw one like the Son of Man. He sees Jesus. It's literally one like a Son of Man. In the ancient world, Son of Man was a Hebrew idiom that literally meant man. If you're a Son of Man, you're a man. Right? However, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of the heavenly Son of Man. Uh, this is Daniel chapter 7, uh, verse 9. And uh, actually, in verse 9, he sees thrones set in place, which also already was troubling for him. John was, Daniel was very troubled when he saw this vision. Thrones are set in place. The Ancient of Days takes his seat. But in verse 13, he says, As I was watching in the night visions, behold, one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He says one like a son of man. Why doesn't he say it was a son of man? Because it couldn't have been a son of man in, in Daniel's mind. He looked like a man, but there's no way he could be a man. Why? Because he's riding on the clouds of heaven. And in the Old Testament, only God rides a cloud mobile. 
And he's seated at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. He's given dominion and glory and a kingdom. All peoples, nations, languages worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom will not pass away. <laughs> and his, his, uh, his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. His dominion will not pass away. And so this figure became known as the heavenly son of man. And he was this enigmatic figure. The interesting thing is if you look through the gospels, Jesus' primary self-designation was son of man. He called himself son of man. Most people didn't realize in that day that when Jesus called himself son of man, he was talking about the Daniel 7, 13 son of man. And so when, when John says here in Revelation 1, I saw one like a son of man. He's quoting Daniel 7.13. He's literally saying, I saw the guy Daniel saw. That heavenly son of man that Daniel didn't know who he was. He was sick to his stomach after the vision because he thought he saw blasphemy. A human being being enthroned at the right hand of God. Being worshipped by all peoples and nations and kingdoms. And the angels worshipping him. And he's receiving dominion in a kingdom. And an everlasting dominion. Right? And so now, John says... I saw one like the Son of Man. So throughout the book of Revelation, Jesus is going to appear as the heavenly Son of Man. This is the first primary image of Jesus, but secondly, as the Lamb. And next Sunday, we're going to see him as the Lamb who was slain in Revelation chapter 5. But here, he's the heavenly Son of Man, and he's walking in the midst of his churches. This is so important. The first thing John sees is Jesus walking in the midst of his churches. The first thing he sees is not the beast, not the Antichrist, not the tribulation, not the millennium, not the rapture, not the white throne judgment. He sees Jesus walking in the midst of his churches, closer than you could ever Imagine chaos is happening all around, but Jesus is walking through the midst of his churches. Jesus, where is Jesus? He's all up in the church. He's all up in it, all up in the churches. He's up in their business. He's up in their worship services. He's watching. He's listening. He's speaking. He's touching. Where is Jesus right now? All kind of chaos and all kind of stuff happening, all kind of political things happening in the world and all kinds of natural disasters. Where's Jesus? He's all up in the church. He's all up in his churches. He's watching. He's listening. He's speaking. And this is why when we get to chapters 2 and 3, in which Jesus will speak to each of these churches, the first thing he says to all seven churches is, I know. I know. I know. I know your perseverance. I know your trials. I know your tribulations. I know your strengths and your weaknesses. I know your sins. I know, I know your righteousness. I know, I know. I know what you're going through. I know what you did last summer. I know. I know where you've been and I know where you're going. I know. This is the message of Jesus. I know. I know who you are. I know where you're going. I know where you stand. I know. He's up in the midst, all up in it all up in your face. Jesus, listen, even though our services are online, you know where Jesus is? He's all up in our services. He's all up in the chat. 
He's all up in it. He's, all, he's listening. He's walking through all of the churches, even though all the churches are online everywhere. He's walking through the midst of the churches right now, every Sunday morning. You might skip a week. Jesus doesn't skip a week. He attends every prayer meeting. He attends every community group meeting. Even if two or more are gathered in his name, he says, there I am in the midst of them. I know. Why? Because I'm listening. He's listening to every word that's being spoken, to every song being sang. He's weighing our hearts. He's inspecting our fruit. That's what Jesus is doing. Even if you're home by yourself, he knows if the worship is going and you're not worshiping, he knows. He's there. He's watching. He's listening. He's inspecting our fruit. He's watching us as a house. He says, I know. I'm all up in it. And what does John see? First of all, he says, he sees his clothing. In the midst of the seven golden lampstands, one like the Son of Man, this is verse 13, clothed with a garment down to his feet. This is a priestly robe. This, is, this, act, this, this robe actually represents two things, his priestliness and his kingliness. First of all, this long white robe uh, he was wearing was a, the garment of a high priest. The high priest of Israel wore a long right, white robe with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel embroidered on their shoulders. Jesus is wearing this priestly ephod, this priestly garment. And secondly, there's a golden breastplate, golden sash around his chest. Um, and the, the high priest wore a golden breastplate with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel uh, um, embroidered on it representing the fact that he's not only bearing their burdens on his shoulders, but he's carrying Israel in his heart. Jesus is saying, I'm wearing the priestly robe because I'm bearing your burdens and I'm carrying you in my heart. He's the priest, which means a bridge builder. That word priest literally means a bridge builder. Uh, he's building a bridge between us and, and the Father. Uh, but also, he's wearing the king's robe. Uh, that is, he's both a king and a priest. And, and uh, you know, whenever anyone in the ancient world wore a belt around their waist, it meant that they, they were still working. But if they wore that belt around their chest, it meant that their work was completed. Jesus is wearing the belt around his chest, meaning my work is completed. Before we get started with what's coming, I just want you to know that it's already done. I'm already the beginning. I'm already the end. And then his hair and head were like wool, white like wool, which is exactly the image of the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. It declares his agelessness. He is before all things. He's the Ancient of Days. He predates and postdates every kingdom of the earth. His feet were like, uh, like burnished bronze refined in the fire. In Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar had this vision of an image. Uh, an image. Its head was made of gold. And its, its uh, shoulder, its arms and chest were made of silver. And its belly and thighs uh, were made of bronze. And then its legs were made of iron. And then its feet were part iron, part clay. And then there was this stone that came in and crashed the feet. And it just slammed onto the feet. And the whole thing fell to pieces. It was destroyed. And uh, that vision of this image represented the kingdoms of the earth that were becoming progressively weaker and weaker and weaker. And the feet were made of clay. Jesus' feet is made of bronze, meaning his, his feet are burnished bronze, which means that his kingdom endures. That is, there's no stone that can collapse his feet, that can, that can bring down his kingdom. There is nothing in history that can destroy uh, the kingdom of Jesus, right? I'm trying to finish this because we're, we're already over time. Uh, and then he had in his right hand seven stars, which actually represent the messengers or angels of the seven churches. We'll talk about that uh, at some point, hopefully. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Now, there's two actually, there's, there's multiple Greek terms for sword. This particular Greek term for sword speaks of a sword 
a, sh a short sword that's used for short for uh, close range fighting. So there's long swords. You keep your enemy at a distance, but then there's short swords that are used for close range fighting. It means that when Jesus cuts you with the sword of his mouth, he gets all up in your face. Close range. He's all up in it. That's. I think I'm going to title this sermon, All Up In It. Because that's really the message is that Jesus is all up in it. His countenance was like the sun shining at his strength. Verse 17, and John said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. But he laid his right hand on me. And he said to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. This is the message of the book. Don't be afraid. If you have fear about the upcoming election, don't be afraid. God's end time clock is already set. His plan is already in motion. Nothing that happens in this election can change it. If you're worried about natural disasters, don't be afraid. It does not mean that there will be no tragedies. It does not mean that there will be no trouble. It does not mean that there will be no tribulation. But the word of the Lord to us in the midst of our tribulation, and this is literally lesson number one in living as a robust disciple of Jesus in the midst of world chaos, is that all of that is happening outside. But what's happening inside is Jesus walking in the midst of us. Don't be afraid. I am the beginning and the end. And in his fear, he's completely and totally paralyzed. He falls at the feet of Jesus as a dead person. And when I read that at first, I thought he falls at the feet of Jesus as a dead person because he's overcome by the glory, like he got slain in the spirit. But Jesus puts his right hand on him and says, don't be afraid. He was paralyzed by fear. And that's what the enemy wants to do to you. He wants to, he wants to paralyze you with fear. But the word of Jesus, don't be afraid. I am the beginning and I am the end. I've already handled it. I've already taken care of it. I've already finished the work. I hold all of history in my hands. You don't have to fear the beast. You don't have to fear the Antichrist. You don't have to fear the 666. You don't have to fear the tribulation. You don't have to fear the millennium. You don't have to fear the white throne judgment. You don't have to fear anything that's to come. Before I show you anything else, I want to show you that you don't have to be afraid because I am Alpha and Omega. I am beginning and the end. I am he who was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And then he says, and I hold the keys of death and hell. And actually that word death in the Greek is Hades and it literally means unseen. I hold the keys of the unseen. I see what nobody else sees and I see what you don't see. And John, if you could see what I see, you would know that you don't have to be afraid. We can be like Peter in the midst of chaos. We're looking at the wind and the waves and we begin to sink. And, but instead, Jesus is calling us to look to him. Look at me. 
Why did you doubt, Peter? He lifts up, lifts out his hand and takes Peter up and says, Why did you doubt? Look at me. Don't look at the wind and the waves. Look at me. And the message of the book of Revelation is that we've been listening to the wrong voices and we've been looking into the wrong faces and it's causing us to fear. And you know when you're listening to the wrong thing when you're afraid. You know that you're looking to the wrong place when you're afraid. This is why John says, Blessed is he who reads. And blessed is he who hears. Because if you read and you hear, if you listen and you look, behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. He is coming right now. He is coming. He's already in the process of coming. That process began 2,000 years ago. We don't know how long the process of him coming and breaking in upon history is going to last. But we don't have to be afraid. Because whatever happens, he is coming. But even as he is coming, he's with us. All up in it. In the middle of the churches. In the middle of the churches. I don't know about you, but I want to be all up in what Jesus is all up in. I want him all up in my business. Because he wants me all up in his business. Don't be afraid. John is writing to the churches in Asia Minor, Asia Minor that are suffering under the persecution of Domitian. Many of them are being killed. Many of them, their property is being confiscated. Uh, many of them, they're being taken to court for no reason. Uh, many of them are being harassed by Roman soldiers for no reason. And many of them are being murdered by Domitian and his, his, uh, his thugs. But Jesus speaks and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I am the beginning and I am the end. I am the alpha and I am the omega. You don't even have to be afraid of death. Why? Because I am the one who was dead and behold, I live and I am alive forevermore and I hold the keys of death and hell. The word of the Lord is coming to break the spirit of fear off of you today. The word of the Lord is coming to open your eyes and to give you the anticipation and that sense of, of awe and, and reverence and expectation that we're just sitting in a theater and of course the lights have to go down in the house so that the lights can brighten on the stage and the curtain is being pulled pulled back and 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 as the curtain is being pulled back our hearts should be exploding with joy and anticipation because he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him he is the beginning and he is the end he is the first and he is the last the book of revelation was not written to give us a calendar of end time events so that we can set our clocks and say, when this happens, then this is going to happen. And when this happens, then this is going to happen. And then there's going to be this many years of this and this many years of that. That's not the purpose of the book of Revelation. John is writing to, in, to encourage us to be robust, growing, and faithful disciples of Jesus in the midst of an empire that is hostile to his gospel. And because of that, the book of Revelation is incredibly relevant to who we are and to where we are and to what's going on in our world. In no book of the Bible does Jesus appear as clearly and as powerfully as he does in the book of Revelation. And what our hearts should long for as we read and as we hear is the appearing 
the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The book is supposed to stimulate your longing to see Jesus. And if it does that, it will have hit its mark. Don't worry, we're going to talk about the other stuff. We're going to talk about the beast, the Antichrist, the millennium, the tribulation. We're going to talk about it all. But lesson number one is not about that. We're going to talk about it, but all that stuff is secondary and even tertiary. What is preeminent? What is first? What is the priority? Is Jesus. Seeing Jesus. And where do we see him? All up in it. Right in the middle of his churches. He has intimate knowledge of where you are, of who you are, and of what you need. And because of that, he's come today to lay his right hand on you and say, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. We're going to pray now, and I'm going to invite my wife to come up. Just bow your heads with me, and let's pray. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Precious Heavenly Father, I just speak your blessing over each and every one of your sons and daughters. Those who hear, those who have an ear to hear, those whom you are giving eyes to see. I pray right now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would stimulate in the hearts of each and every one of us who hear today a new longing to see Jesus and to see him as he is. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you are with us, that you are all up in it. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are walking in the midst of your churches. And right now, under the sound of my voice, if there's anybody watching or listening, and you say that you know in your heart that you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have not embraced him as Lord and Savior. And I would dare say because of that, you, you have all kinds of fear in your life that you don't need to carry. All kinds of anxiety. Listen, coming to Jesus is coming to the one who loved you. Amen who washed you of your sins by his blood, mm. who came to make you a king and a priest to his God and Father, mm. who wants to bear your burdens so that mm. you don't carry them alone. And if you hear the sound of my voice and you mm. feel your heart opening, I want to invite you to pray a simple prayer with me that would mark the beginning mm. of your walk with Jesus Christ. And I just want you to pray this prayer out loud. And I'm going to ask everybody to pray it out loud with me right now. Say, Father, Father, I come to you. I come to you. In the name of your son Jesus. In the name of your son Jesus. I confess. I confess. That Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is Lord. And I open my heart right now. And I open my heart right now. In Jesus. In Jesus. I invite you. I invite you to come in. To come in. To take up residence in me. To take up residence in me. Wash away all of my sins. Wash away all of my sins. I repent. I repent. Make me clean. Make me clean. Make me new. Make me new. And fill me up with your presence. And fill me up with your presence. Take away my fear. Take away my fear. 
And teach me to trust in you. And teach me to trust in you. And to walk with you. And to walk with you. All the days of my life. All the days of my life. In your holy name I pray. In your holy name I pray. Amen. Amen. Now listen, if you prayed that simple mm. prayer, I want to invite you just to write in the chat mm. right now, I prayed the prayer. Mm. Just so that we could be there. I prayed the prayer. There's also a link in the chat right now that says, I prayed the prayer. If you would mm. click that link and let us know so that we can encourage you and we could walk with you. We need to know. Well, I said it's the beginning of your walk with Christ. Mm. It's not the completion or the fulfillment of it or the mm. end of it. Mm. But we want to be that community of believers that walks with you mm. as you walk with mm. Christ, that encourages you in your walk with the Lord. Mm. We love you today. Mm. Amen. Amen.